0: What an amazing conversation I've had with my guest this week, Sharmadine Reed. Firstly, I have to say that I was very excited to talk to her. I think the last time we met each other was 10 years ago on a stage when we did a talk. She's an energetic, totally focused, hugely innovative woman. And speaking with her and hearing her story firsthand was just so insightful, insightful for all us women. She's on a mission, as much as I'm on a mission, her mission is to help women and to break our glass ceilings, to change our future, to change the landscape. And so many things that she said resonated with me, but also opened my eyes. It was a real deep conversation. I'm absolutely excited to see what Sharmaine does, and I'm quite sure it will be nothing short of a miracle.
1: Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going, you won't need to bring your
0: frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK Ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, Shamadine. It's so lovely to finally have the opportunity to talk to you. I'm a great admirer of yours and I
1: love the Stack World. Welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, you're an absolute icon. You paved the way for people like me. So honoured to be here.
0: Oh, well, that's so lovely of you to say. And you're a visionary and you're an entrepreneur, you're a champion of women. Um, And so this is why this is just a perfect sort of moment for me because I love, love, love everything that you're doing. You grew up in Wolverhampton as the eldest of four children in a large single-parent Jamaican family. And I read when researching you that times were tough um, when you were growing up. There wasn't a lot of money, but that you were always encouraged to be who and whatever you wanted to be. Where did that
1: come from? In Jamaican culture, I didn't realise that this was part of the culture, but there is definitely this um, audacity of belief and that you can do anything you want to do and be whoever you want to be. And Two examples that come to mind to kind of illustrate it is imagine I'm in Jamaica driving around all of the lanes and you've got to remember there's only like three major roads in Jamaica, one that goes all the way around the island and then two that intersect the island. So I'm driving through these tiny villages and I look to my left and I see this tiny little shack um, painted so beautifully in the Jamaican flag and on the top it says Future Walmart. And that actually made me laugh so hard, but also (laughs) reminded me of the ambitiousness of how Jamaicans think and act and operate. And then there's also this song which your listeners can play by Christopher. I forgot his surname, but the song is called I'm a Big Deal. So the lyrics are, I'm a big deal. Me and my friends are a big deal. Very, very, very important for real. And like, (laughs) if you want to get a taste of what that Jamaican mindset is, those two things really sum it up. And it is that thing of like, it doesn't matter what my circumstances are. It doesn't matter what I've got, but I can be somebody. And I would say that that mentality was definitely around me. I wouldn't say it was drilled into me, like in a kind of Mm -hmm. um, expectant way. It was more just around me that nobody ever told me I couldn't do whatever I wanted to do, whether it was play football or go to an amazing school or do, you know, study fashion. I just, it it was just a given I was going to do it. And did that turn out to be that you were entrepreneurial from a young age? Absolutely. Sometimes I think I worked harder then than I do now, because I was obsessed with getting to London, you know, being somebody, doing some things. I don't know if I would describe myself as entrepreneurial at a young age. What I would say, which I kind of would describe that of myself today, is that I was good at founding, starting things. So Mm -hmm. I'd always be the one who'd be like, why don't we do this? Let's organize this. You know, I've got an idea for this. Wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And one of the challenges I've had in my career is finishing. Like I'm not necessarily good at finishing. I love starting, but I actually think that I don't necessarily or didn't give myself time to mature things. Mm. That is still kind of applicable today, actually, which is like, we might build a product and it's super cool, a super cool new feature. And I don't give the team enough time to let it mature before giving intense feedback the on next. it. next. Yeah. What's next? What's next? What's next? Instead of letting something just develop and grow because, you know, things don't happen overnight. So, yeah, I would say I'm a natural founder. And what I'm learning to do now is think about scaling and growing and going deeper on one thing rather than wide and shallow on lots of things. Yeah.
0: You worked hard. You had almost like a vision. And I know from an early age, um, you had an interest in fashion and you set yourself a target of a place in central St. Martin's when you were 12 years old. And that many years later, um, you went for an interview and you were offered a place. Do you think that... I mean, two things here. One is, do you believe in visualization? Do you believe in, I mean, you from 12, I mean, I wouldn't have even known what Central St. Martin's was. I'm sorry, but that's pretty cool. Did you set yourself that vision? And two is, you're obviously ambitious, as you said. Do you think that you were an overachiever and has that put strain on you as you've matured and, and, and become who you are today?
1: I would say that when I was 12, you know, I was very lucky to have older cousins. And actually it was my cousin who was 18 at the time or 17 preparing to go to university who brought all the prospectuses home from her career's Mm -hmm. day. And she brought the prospectus home for London College of Fashion, which I still remember like what it looked like. It was super beautiful prospectus. And I didn't even know that you could go to uni to do this. As my interest in fashion grew, I realized that St. Martin's was probably more suited to me than London College of Fashion. And then I pursued that as a course, like you said. So I would say that when I was younger, I wouldn't have called it a visualization, but I definitely daydreamed a lot. I would lie in my bedroom at my grandparents' house and I would just stare at the ceiling and be like, I can't wait till I live in London and I have store cards to Harvey Nichols and I'm going to all the fancy restaurants and, you know, I really had a idea of how my life was going to be like, mm. and, um, cause I used to read Vogue from a young age in Elle magazine, Dazed and Confused, ID, The Face, music magazines, I was obsessed. It was effectively my internet, right? Because we didn't have internet. Mm. So I would open the pages of these magazines or I'd watch MTV and it was like a window to a whole nother world that I felt that that was my world. And it wasn't Mm. like I was, I can't wait to escape this small town because I love Wolverhampton and I love going back and I eventually do want to buy a house there and spend more time there. I love my hometown But I also knew that I had this hunger and thirst for culture and ideas and connection that I think you gravitate towards a city for, like whatever your major city is, whether it's New York or LA or wherever. So yeah, visualization, I would call daydreaming. I would daydream myself in these situations and you're right. Now we call it visualisation or manifesting and I think it works because I did it and I'm, mm. I'm literally living the life <laughs> that I thought I'd be living. It's actually wild. Sometimes I just stop myself and I'm like, oh, that's so funny. It's as if I'm in Sex and the Sea. Do you think that
0: then that visualisation or the daydreaming you did, you know, that's a big tall order you set yourself you know that overachieving that working hard how have you coped with that because that could as as much as it's brought you the goods in a way it can also be quite a pressure that we put on ourselves
1: so the interesting thing for me is i've been an overachiever since like i was born and you know i'm not a prodigy at all, but I would write plays for the school from when I was like eight or nine. I would do all of these things. I'd be the star in the play and none of it really phased me or it's going to sound really hard to believe, but I was kind of just always neutral about it. Like I really enjoyed it, but Mm. it, it wasn't like it went to my head and it wasn't like I was overly humble. I just knew that this was where I was meant to be. And what I would say is, the challenge is not the tall order I've set myself because I think I will always strive to do better and be better. It was more like how do I stay motivated? If I've done all the things I set out to do, then now what? like what mm. what do I do next mm. And I think one of the biggest realizations over the last few years for me is. I have a couple of people in my life like when I say couple literally like two who have bigger visions for me than I have for myself like they can see me bigger than I even imagined that I Mm. could um for what I could achieve those people are so rare to have your Mm. back and your achievement and your uh like goals in their mind yeah
0: vested in you yeah
1: they're very much and that for me was like quite mind-blowing because I was like, oh, so I've set this glass ceiling for myself by saying I want to do all these things and now I've done them. Well, the ceiling that other people say is societal, I've actually trapped myself in it. So how can mm. I now, a bit like what I was saying about leadership, you know, go deeper rather than wider, rather than set myself new goals or new things to achieve, why don't I look back at what I've done, look at these common threads on a, you know, on a single line, what is the common thread and how do I do that on a bigger level for more people with more impact, you know, for the next 10 years. Going back to your
0: uni days, this is where this entrepreneurial journey i suppose started didn't it where you founded wa and a, a, it was a print printed fanzine i haven't used that word for a long time fanzine and a magazine which is a community for street smart women and it evolved into um this physical beauty business War nails tell me how you got started with that vision because most people that go to uni just concentrate on their degree and that probably wasn't enough for you
1: do you know what another thing I would say about overachieving is you can ruin the delight of learning things for yourself in your own time because I was so obsessed with fashion from the ages of 12 to like 18 19 that by the time I got to uni I was way ahead of my classmates in terms of what I knew So straight away, I just started working and I worked all the way through my degree. I was very lucky to work for Kim Jones and work for Nicola Formichetti, two of the most influential people in fashion. And I literally worked for four years while doing my degree. So it wasn't that I was bored. It was more that there wasn't enough stuff to do at uni, like in terms of the capacity of what I'm used to and what I've gotten. So the reason why I started was, was twofold. Firstly, I really wanted to learn how to use the software of Adobe InDesign, Photoshop, etc. I knew I needed that software for year four. I wanted, again, get ahead of everyone else and do it in year two. So I taught myself the software, but I needed a project to do so. And, you know, you need something live. And what I did was, you know, created a magazine about women in hip hop, because I thought that that was something that was interesting to me. I had just moved to London. I'd gone to all of these hip hop clubs. There weren't many women. Hip hop was not mainstream. It was all the era of indie and you know, Pete Doherty era. There was no Drake or Rihanna, basically. And I was like, oh, this is weird. Like, what, who, what is the identity I'm meant to play within this scene? Because am I the hypersexualized, or I am treated like a boy backpacker vinyl type person? There's no in-between to be myself. So I use the magazine as a process of working through my identity, as well as learning how to use the programs. So I made the WAR magazine in my second year of university, got issues printed, and then handed it out to lots and lots of cool women on the streets of London. And that's how the first WAR community was built. And then that evolved, didn't it? So For anyone who's made a magazine, it's an incredibly hard thing to do. I really always respect anyone that's done it. And, you know, I was 20 doing it in my bedroom on a mat mini running around with my camera. And I was like, there's got to be a quicker way to doing this. So then I started a blog pretty much immediately after I started the magazine. I started a blog and... The blog was amazing because it meant that anyone around the world could read it. And then I started getting people reading it in New York and LA and all these other places around the world. When I graduated um, a few years later, I continued to make the magazine one a year and then also create the blog And then from traveling around the world, I saw that there were all of these incredible retail experiences happening that weren't really happening in the UK. So, you know, it's hard to take your mind back, but in London, there was no flat white. There was no Mm. iPhone or the iPhone had just come out. There was no Instagram. There was no avocado on toast or anything like that. And I was flying to LA and flying to Tokyo. And I would see these incredibly cool nail salons where all these girls would be hanging out. And I was like, I'm gonna build a nail salon in London. I'm gonna call it WA. So I just did that. It was about a year after I graduated. So I was 25, 24 when I had the idea, 25 when I got it open. And um, I just kind of had this vision for how you could create physical space around a mentality of ambitious women young women who kind of had a feel for inequality but didn't necessarily know how to label it as I didn't at the time by the way I didn't really understand feminism Um, and we just wanted something different and you know it was 2009 it opened and it just blew up it just got massive really quickly and did that
0: that whole experience from the magazine and, and opening up your first place, that sparked something inside of you, didn't it? What was that like as a black female entrepreneur?
1: What I absolutely loved was creating experiences. That was and still is my favourite thing to do. To have people walk into the shop and literally say, I've never seen a shop like this. Never mind a nail salon. I've never seen anything like this. And maybe I could do something similar in my hometown. That was what I enjoyed the most. And it wasn't just that people open nail salons. They also open flower shops and cake shops and all these other things that were inspired by the fact that I was a 25-year-old girl who was a shopkeeper. You know? So that was really, really key. I loved... Interacting with customers, I wasn't necessarily a good manager, leader, businessy type person. What I would say is that I got put into that category because people were so surprised by a young person opening a shop back then. I know, like, it's normal now, but it wasn't really normal. And even it's funny now because none of my we were talking actually within my friend circle the other day about how few of our community own space, so no one owns shops and pubs and you know my friends used to own a pub round the corner and my other friends owned a warehouse party rave spot and we owned art galleries and now my friends don't really own things in terms of spaces that we can hang out and call community spaces that aren't just commercial spaces. So I think um, because people were surprised by that, I got a lot of press. And then obviously the shop and myself are visually interesting. When I first opened the salon, I never got asked, what's it like to be a woman in business? People would always say, how did you start that? Because that was like the curious thing. Then there started to be a lot more focus on gender a couple of years later with the whole Rise of girl boss Culture, and people would say, what's it like to be a woman in business? And I was like, hmm, never thought about that. And then a few years later, race was on the agenda. Then people would say, what's it like to be a black woman in business? And I was like, hmm, never thought about that. So, you know, it's very, it's been interesting for me over the last, like, 15 years or so to see how the conversation has shifted um, based on what, Is currently trending because when I started, nobody seemed to care about being a black woman in business. No. Yeah. And, you know, it's a bit of a double edged sword, isn't it? Because at the same time, it it helps me understand. The ways that the system is working against me that I might not have realized before but then once you know it you start to have these limiting thoughts and limiting beliefs like I'm never going to make it because I'm a black woman and everyone knows whereas before I'm pretty much up until I moved to London I definitely moved through the world with a naivety that I'm just me and I can do whatever I want and I think that naivety really um really took me far
0: I, I just, what a brilliant way of describing everything. Because I, I talk about starting Not On The High Street and I talk about naivety being absolutely our best friend. Absolutely. It, it, if If we had ever even thought about what we were taking on, there would be no way that we would start it. And then just like yourself, I never actually thought of myself as a woman in business. Mm. I just thought I was in business until until you start to deal with the rest of the world. And then suddenly, you're a woman in business. Um, I just thought I was building a company. I I didn't know it mattered if you were a woman or a man. And again, that naivety um, came to bite me on the butt, um, you know, in, in time. But before I ask you about that, you told me that the first six months, within first six months of opening the shop, it wasn't you know, it wasn't necessarily going well. Tell me about what
1: happened. Oh, no, it was going great. It popped oh, it was off. Going... I just didn't want to do it. Oh, you just didn't <laughs> want to do it. Right. It was so, you got to imagine that before before I started the salon, I was a stylist and a trend consultant. And what that meant is that I travelled around the world as a 23, 24 year old living my fantasy life, I got paid a lot of money to tell people my opinions and that was it. Mm. And that was my extent of business. And I would work probably half the month and then the other half of the month, I would read, go raving, collect trends, travel. I had an amazing life. I was doing a masters at Goldsmiths in cultural theory. And then when I started the business, I suddenly had to deal with payroll, HR, HMRC. (laughs) And you were stuck to a location. I was stuck to a location. I was not looking after myself, not eating. I was sweeping the floor, painting toenails. I literally went from, you know, being very autonomous and independent to then Mm. having to look after like 15 young women nail artists. And I was like, I remember every week, I'd spend three to four hours doing the rotor, Just doing the rotor. And I was like, (laughs) what is life? So after six months, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. But the problem is it had grown so popular that I felt like I couldn't close it. it, People Mm. were literally coming from so far to come to the salon to get their nails done in a way that they couldn't get done anywhere else. And um, yeah, it was my first lesson in doing, like I basically did that salon for 10 years for other people, not for myself. And that's a long time.
0: That's a long time to be doing something. You felt you owed it
1: to what, the vision? The customers. The customers. And you know, at least once a week someone says to me, Why don't you bring back War? Well? <laughs> now. Yeah. People it because there's no replacement. It was legendary. It mm. was like amazing and cool and innovative. And, you know, we did so many pioneering like things like when we did the VR project, etc. You know, we did chatbots. Um, it was just really innovative and People miss that. They miss the safe space to hang out and chat and be inspired.
0: And tell me, you closed the doors in 2019 um, and you just missed out on the pandemic. Um, tell me, you,
1: what did it feel like when you closed the doors? So continuing on the theme of me being completely contradictory, controversial, I wish I'd had the shop during the pandemic. And the reason for that is I could have turned it into an essential store quite easily. We could have been an amazing community center of mental health support for the beauty professionals who are suddenly stuck at home. You know, you're talking about very social, extroverted people who are then not dealing or talking to anybody. Mm. You know, we could have... um, Done the flour and the eggs and the sugar, and then like had the window open. And because we were in Soho, you can't really hang out there, so people could have come and gone. And you know, it wasn't like the costs were massively high at that space. I actually think it would have given a lot of people support if we'd had it. Yeah. But what we did do during the pandemic was, you know, we effectively pivoted to the stack world and that was just me continuing to fulfill the mission but i do miss having space it's always where the magic happens for me
0: if you're a regular listening to this podcast or in fact any of my content you'll know that dell technologies sit right at the heart of the holly and co family We've partnered for a number of years and they've been central to bringing you our bi-weekly business pharmacy sessions, powering our online advice hub, think of it as a small business newspaper, as well as this very podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. And we're the leading partner in times of crisis with SME SOS throughout COVID and let's not forget their support in the independent awards too. This year alongside our bi-weekly business pharmacies on Instagram this podcast and our online advice hub they'll also be joining us in a very new and special project which I can't wait to share more about in the coming months their commitment to small businesses has never wavered and aside from being the most wonderful team to work with behind the scenes they're committed to empowering you all with the technology you need to make your business the most successful it can be, whilst giving you access to all the tools to demystify tech and help you continue to innovate and grow. To find out more about our work with Dell Technologies and how they can help you on your own business journey, head to holly.co forward slash Dell. Now back to Conversations of Inspiration. you say that you went then to found, you said the Stack World, you founded Beauty Stack. Tell me more about that. It's the beauty gig economy um, and it was your
1: love of the beauty world? Yeah, so there was a crossover between what and Beauty Stack. So I started working on this as a concept in 2016, was the first time I did the pitch deck, but then I didn't touch it for years. So I did the pitch deck 2016, Carried on building the Soho salon, got the Soho salon open. And then in 2017, I was like, look, I I actually want to work on this. So I left the salon to the manager who was running, and I would just sit in this little room off Tottenham Court Road working on my startup. So funny the good old days, (laughs) the the hopeful (laughs) days. I met my co-founders, Dan Woodbury and Ken LaLobo, and then there were three of us sitting in a little room working on our startup. And we built a really rough, um, like, beta version whereby a nail professional or lashes or whatever could build their own website, they could upload their pictures, and when you clicked a picture, it would add the JPEG to a calendar item in the database and book it and that had never been done before and I don't think anyone still has done it and what I mean by that is you're not clicking a picture and then saying then booking separately you're clicking the picture and booking the actual picture and going through that booking process so you could never just book a normal manicure you would have to book a picture of a manicure or Mm -hmm. Some of our nail artists would create a graphic of the word manicure and, and book it. And I had this whole vision for visual, for visual booking systems, for, you know, the data that you would get, knowing what trends were happening. So we could say, wow, there's a big spike in people booking purple French nails. What's going on there? And then you'd find out that like Lady Gaga had it or Rihanna had it and then everyone wanted it. So... I started doing that and building that and there was crossover. So, you know, I was doing Beauty Stack while the salon was still open, closed the salon on its 10-year anniversary, purely because I thought that was a neat end to the time-wise. And then we carried on doing Beauty Stack. We launched, so this is 2019. I closed the salon in July. We carried on building an alpha version of Beauty Stack and an app. We went to launch the public version in, like, basically March 2020. And then we were like, we couldn't do it. So that was, you know, where it became a really tough time. And is that,
0: did you raise money for Beauty Stack?
1: Yeah, so we raised a pre-seed round of, like, 600K from Local Globe. And then we just raised a 4 million seed round from Index Ventures
0: And what was that like raising money? Because I mean, I've raised money quite a few times and there's a crazy statistic that last year, 1p out of every pound went to female founded businesses, 99p went to male founded businesses. And I know when, if you want to talk about black female founders, it's 0.02% of VC funding. I'm not shocked to read that because I'm completely almost sort of, you know, (laughs) I know what it's like to be a female and trying to raise money, and and what it was like. But what was it
1: like for you? I would say that in the early days, it was not too difficult because I was very much on the intersection of lots of different trends that were happening, and I think that my profile and career history was perfectly suited to build beauty stack, and I think that's what. Many founders, whether male or female, um, might often forget. So what I mean by that is, at the time, there were big trends happening. So beauty was a big one. Glossier had just raised, um, you know, other um, booking platforms had just raised. I think one of them had just been acquired. Then the tech arm was key. So I wasn't actually building a D2C product. I was building software Then the fact that I'd had this 10-year career in beauty at one of the most cutting-edge, like culturally relevant places was really interesting. And I think it was just that trifecta of being in the right place at the right time. It also happened to be that, um, you know, people were looking for new deals in London at the time and people were coming from Europe and the US. So it was just a moment. What I would say is that it's quite difficult to raise if those forces are not working with you and you're a woman, you know, and you're a person of colour when you don't necessarily have those networks to make the introductions to raise the money. Because what the pandemic has done is it's made it all less serendipitous it's not as easy to bump into people at you know venture networking events so I spent a lot of time in those early years from 2016 to 18 at Google campus I spent a lot of time going to pitch nights I spent a lot of time going to anything venture related and then I would just talk to people about my business and introduce myself and I think the last two years have been incredibly hard for women and people of color because they're not already in those networks to then jump on a Zoom. I would say as well that I kind of am of the belief that founders, and especially women and women of colour who have already been up against these challenges, might sometimes feel nervous about pitching or undersell or, you know, not be as ambitious as they could be. So saying we're gonna get, you know, to 10 million of revenue instead of 100 million of revenue. Because it feels stupid to say these things because they're like pie in the sky. You know, I think, speaking for myself, I'm a realist. I'm not gonna go and do some tech bro thing of walking into a room with all this bravado and throwing out numbers and lies. That's not my style. So you kind of got to find a balance of being ambitious enough to sound audacious, while also realistic enough that you don't feel silly while saying it. And that's something that I think is a, is a big challenge. And when I see women pitch to me, I think, but this could be massive. And you're talking about a tiny little market here, when what about this massive little market mm. there? And that's kind of the venture way. Um, so yeah, I think when I raised money the first time, it was very much like I was full of optimism and ambition and audacity and hope and the right place at the right time. But I, you know, managed to get the money, but I found it's still very difficult to build the network within the tech scene because it still is very, not only white male, but still very Eton private school led massively. Mm -hmm. Like... You look at people in the London tech scene, and it is to me a boys' club that is no different to politics or you know biz, yeah. you know, traditional business. It's not it's not any different. The last thing I want to say about venture is I think it's really important to understand if it's the right method of funding for your business. It can seem so seductive to have and almost, you know, it seems like an infinite bank balance. It always runs out, by the way. But, you know, at the time I was like, wow, this is so much money. That said, because i ran run a small business for like 10 years, I really thrive on constraint, which is why I think I said about the pandemic being quite a both traumatic and exciting time because I'm like a wartime CEO. Like When when my back's up against the wall, that's when I deliver. And I think what venture did was give me the incredible resources to have the freedom to experiment and play. But also, I didn't really know how to spend that money. And I wasn't really given guidance on how to do so because I'd never done it before in that way. Most of the other founders I've met might have either already come from a startup or they come from a consulting background and they do this day in day out you know at the salon I'd never been given large sums of money we always just had to hustle so what I would say is that my investors have been incredible in taking a bet on someone who had never done anything of this type of scale before um And actually, they didn't question the beauty aspect, but I think that's because it was trending at the time, you know, which I cannot, cannot, cannot underestimate riding a trend in terms of raising funding. If you read about a round that seems ridiculous and you're like, how on earth did that thing raise that much money? It's because it's trend based. I think the other thing about venture, I feel like I've got so many thoughts about venture capital, but it was also the first time I doubted myself. You know, I've told you my entire journey and I was a confident child and a confident teenager and a confident young woman. And then I would say that what venture did was actually, not venture because, you know, I did it to myself, is that it actually made me doubt myself. Because I was in a pool, a cohort or a portfolio of all these other founders who are basically like the starting gates of, you know, the starting guns fired (laughs) and you're all running off to the races. But some of you trip over and some of you break your ankle and some of you get distracted and some of you die of thirst and. I had never been in that type of environment before and I just constantly felt like I wasn't doing enough or going fast enough or getting enough success. And I would say that the longest lasting effect of venture was the knock on my confidence as a a businesswoman. So how did you get the
0: confidence to do it again with the stack world? (laughs) Not care about what anyone says. (laughs) It was like,
1: (laughs) it was... It was through a lot of coaching actually and a lot of executive coaching and leadership support. And you know, being a CEO is a high performance activity and you do have to have coaches and peer groups and all of that stuff. So I have a regular monthly peer group. I would speak to founders who had been through the mill. I had an amazing executive coach. I had two actually, one after the other, and both of them were incredible. And both of them really helped me try to understand that I was putting a lot of my self-worth into the people around me. I was effectively giving them all of my emotions and I was giving them all like the responsibility for me, which they're not responsible for me. They only had one job to do, which is fund me, which they did and nothing, and everything else is my responsibility. Yeah. So, So yeah, it took a lot of work, but then I just thought, You know, something, one of my investors, actually, you probably won't even remember, but during the pandemic, you know, Danny Reimer was like, you're the voice of a generation. Like, that's what you should be doing. And now that's what I think about. I think if I am the voice of the generation of women that I represent, what is it they want to hear from me? And everything else is irrelevant, you know? And so what is then the stack world? Because this is
0: the latest amazing business baby that you've created.
1: And it's just fantastic. Taking us back to March 2020, we realized that our beauty professionals would not be able to sell their services because of the government guidelines. And it wasn't like America or Europe where it was city by city or state by state. It was just full shutdown. We immediately sprung into action. And three weeks later, we did a video workshop for some of our pros um, which took off massively. And then we started to do these sessions, which were passing the information that the government was giving on the Sunday evening broadcast. Do you remember that? Every Sunday yeah. they'd do a little yeah, broadcast. Absolutely. And the guidelines were always very blurred around beauty. So we would listen to them and write notes. And then basically our audience would trust what we said. And we did that all through March, April, May, et cetera. And we built this little community on Zoom. It wasn't little, actually. It was quite a big chunk of our users where they were talking about guidelines and mental health and how to diversify their business, how to start selling online, how to create products, you know, all the things that you know and you've seen in in your industry. And then what I realized was, When Boris announced Tier 4 lockdown in December, it had been nine months that we'd been burning through our runway with no revenue, no metrics. And I'm sure you know that's a long time in startup land. So I thought, you know something? If we don't pivot, we're going to die. Because if we don't survive the Christmas period for beauty, if it's still closed, that's really bad for our industry. So then, my grandma had also just passed away in December, not COVID related, natural causes, but she was the matriarch of the family. I'd grown up with her. It was incredibly devastating. And I basically just took the December time out, went to Jamaica. Then Boris said we all had to come home. So I had to fly back. And it was just a horrible time, actually, now that I'm talking about it. But what I did do was I wrote an entirely new business plan, a new brand. You know, I told you I'm good at founding. I can knock out a brand in a matter of hours if I had to. Yeah, yeah. So I did all of that. And then I came back in January and I said to the team, right, here's what we're going to do. We know that women want community. We know they want our voice. They trust our voice. They trust who we are and what we say. We also found that not only were we attracting beauty professionals to our workshops, but actually we were attracting their clients and their clients are in film and fashion and corporates and design. And why don't we go beyond beauty? Let's drop beauty and just call it the stack. And it's the stack world. And we're going to build the biggest community of mission-driven women. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but we're going to charge from day one because we need to make revenue and let's go. (laughs) And then... (laughs) And then we built it. We built a new version of the platform in about eight weeks. We launched on International Women's Day. And yeah, that, that was it.
0: And the Stack World is basically a platform, it's not basic at all, but it's a women's media platform, which is reimagining where community, business, and politics and can sit side by side along with beauty and culture. And it's a place for people to come together. Um Did that start of that business, did that start to regain your confidence? Did you start to become alive again? Did you start to sort of feel yourself
1: picking up? No. I was incredibly devastated, traumatized. I was really sad to have to not do beauty stack because I didn't have the resources to do both. I had been thinking about Beauty Stat for a decade and I had to think of the stat world in like four weeks. Yeah. I yeah. was I was really sad, but I knew I just had to keep moving forward. And I would say it's only now, like 18 months later, that I'm like, oh, this is fab actually, and this is working and this is great. And the way it kicked off was that I was trying to rethink what the relationship between editorial experiences and community looked like. I'm a big fan of media, but I felt like there wasn't an in between women's magazines and business press. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure you probably felt the same. You'd either be featured in like Cosmo or you'd be featured in the Times, and there was no like in between. Yeah. Yeah. So where the stack is now is we are very much a platform for powering women's communities. And those women's communities could be for a individual, such as a supper club. It could be for a business, like running an internal community for them, or it could be for a brand. So build a community around this product or, you know, this mood. And And why why do you think people don't like networking? The name even networking,
0: right? That's the, I, I, what is it about the word networking that I think we might be put off by? Whereas the word community and as you're building communities, I think now we're able to
1: embrace it. I feel like networking was a dirty word because it feels transactional And it makes you think of a conference room where you're walking up to people and asking them like, who are you? What do you do? How can we work together? Whereas community is really about a support structure and a community is a lot more nurturing and supportive of the things that you might be going through. So I always say community takes you from minus 10 to zero and a network takes you from zero to a hundred. So it might be that you're, Coming up against an issue, and your community is there for you in a nurturing way by saying, You can do this, and you've got this, and all of this type of thing. But then a network says, Oh, you've got an issue. Why don't you use this lawyer I've got? Why don't you use my advisor? You know, so I see them as two different functions, but you kind of, your network grows out of your community. I think rather than the other way around I'm not sure mm. if a network becomes a community and what I would also say is this kind of goes back to the realism of women when they're working is you want a deeper connection right so swapping business cards with someone isn't fulfilling it doesn't you don't leave a networking event feeling fulfilled you no have just thought, oh my goodness, I've got 10 business cards in my purse and how on earth am I, and now I've got to arrange coffees with them all. So, you know, it doesn't leave these good feelings, but what I would say is that it's critical for your growth and it's about finding the way that it works for you. And I really, really think about soft power as a skill that is going to be absolutely critical for the next 10 years you know as we move less from this kind of intense 5am masculine style of leadership of like boom 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 productivity efficiency and we move into a more nurturing supportive uh workplace that accepts everybody as they are you're going to need those soft power skills you're going to need those networking skills because the style what what young talent will put up with is just changing so mm. yeah i th- I, th- I think these interpersonal skills are absolutely key for your growth
0: I'm thrilled to welcome a brand new partner to the Holly & Co family today, a brand that has such a rich heritage, purpose and is on a mission to change the lives of women across the world, Avon, a brand you'll no doubt recognise but how much do you really know about them? I have to admit that whilst I of course know the Avon name well, I actually knew very little about the brand's heritage and mission. The impact they have made to date has been phenomenal. And so when I met the team at Avon, it was just a natural fit. A brand that is truly aligned with our own mission to champion women in business. I'll be using this ad break to share more about Avon, its impact, its purpose, which will be a fascinating insight into one of the biggest beauty brands making its positive mark on the world. If you'd like to learn more about Avon or doing beauty your own way by building your very own business as an Avon rep, whether that's selling online or face to face, head over to holly.co forward slash Avon. Now, back to our conversation of
1: inspiration.
0: You wrote something called All the Things I Got Wrong in 2020. And um, it was very, very powerful. And you, you... you gave yourself COVID compassion and we we talk about we're talking about all things sort of female founder here but you've got female fact you have got emotional labor you've got um all of these things that I talk all the time about and actually being a female founder it's not for the faint hearted is it uh, just generally even if you're a mother the whole thing we could actually do a whole podcast on that tell me how COVID was for you personally and why you wrote that article So
1: I write that article every year because I think reflection is good and self-reflection is good. And actually it helps me to see why I made the decisions I made. But then also a lot of people have told me they've found them quite useful um, in terms of making them not feel stupid or alone. They're like, well, if Sh- even Sharma failed at i Z. I'm like, yeah, it's- we all make mistakes. The most powerful, most successful people in the world will still tell you about the one bad business decision that they made. So that's kind of why I wrote it. And COVID for me, you know, I actually really liked lockdown in the beginning because I'd never spent that much time with my son before. Yeah. And I was like, me too I- by
0: the way, I felt like it was like I mean obviously we're not talking about the devastation that was going on out there, but I felt like I had been um I got like a permanent off school slip or something, even though I was working harder than ever, I got to be in my home and with my child and as you said, just I don't know the life that I'd never lived, you know it's it was it, it was an odd
1: moment, wasn't it. Exactly. And I feel like I've been working, have been working since I was 14 years old. Mm. And I never gave myself a break to just be. And I have quite fond memories of the first lockdown, like Mm. most people, where we are like, this, this, my nervous system slowing down and my, anxieties are slowing down and actually we're just slowing down and then not living off adrenaline yeah and then it got really traumatic so within a short period the combination of the true devastation of the deaths that were happening and how it was increasing people's anxiety and then the murder of George Floyd and then the death you know, the murder of Sarah Everard. And it was just all of these things, one after another, which was negative news about women and black people, of which I'm both, it felt quite constant. And I would say that it was definitely the longest period in my life where I had a underlying melancholy. But mm. I always put this pressure on myself to just keep moving forward and, you know that's what I did and the problem with doing that is you do burn out and explode and I would say I had several phases of burnout during the pandemic um because I was actually even though I was at home and I was nice and slow when my son came home from school I found myself working I felt like I was working 16 hour days yeah because I was just still I was at home It's quite contradictory, but I both remember having amazing two-hour walks in the day, but also being at my computer till like one in the morning. Yeah. So yeah, I would say that COVID for me was bittersweet because it led me to where I am now. And I always try and look at the silver lining. And I always think that the universe is effectively nudging me in the direction of where I'm meant to be. That I never think this is the wrong path. I think I'm getting these little nudges. So pivoting to the stack world is another little nudge. You know, my investors telling me this is amazing. This is what you should have always been doing is another little nudge. Growth in revenue is another little nudge. Growth in users, it's all uh, iterative reinforcement. that actually I'm getting closer and closer to the work that I'm meant to be doing Um, it just was such a strange time and a strange way for it to happen. And also as a business owner and a young business owner, it was my first ever global event. And what I mean by that is for most people that might've been a recession or a war. For us, it was the pandemic. And it was the first time that as a business owner, I had different muscles being stretched um, in terms of being a Empathetic leader to my team, understanding how to talk about issues like Black Lives Matter, um, understanding how to furlough, how to raise uh, you know, emergency funding, all of these types of things I'd never actually done before, and I had to quickly learn how to do them. So, you know, all of it's just part of the journey. And I would say to your point on being a female founder, that it's harder than it looks. I don't think being a founder is for everyone. And I think it's been heralded as the new, like, rock star. Like, being an entrepreneur is like the coolest thing you could do right now. But I actually think the coolest thing you could do is find out what your personal mission is. And if there is nobody already doing that, then yes, by all means, start it. But actually, being part of a team is also incredible. And maybe you can be an entrepreneur within an organization. And maybe you can start something within your company so that you've still got the safety and security and the and the coaching and support. And I think having the strength to have those conversations with your leadership team or joining an existing startup that is already working on what you're working, there's also no shaming that. I feel like everyone feels that they need to be the rock star entrepreneur when. It's just as honorable to work in a big team. Yeah, it totally. And as long as you're
0: based in your mission, in your vision, in your your want for your life, and that you've done that thinking and that you've ever looked at that. Um, tell me, why did you think you you wrote this article and it, it's brilliant. You ironically, though, felt though, that speaking out made you a target for cancel culture. Um, and this sort of um you spoke about you know netflix has done cowspiracy and then C-spiracy. and then you said you know i'm waiting for herspiracy um do you think that we're at we're at that point as a society i forgot i
1: said that but now, <laughs> but now that you said it but now that you said it it's kind of like when people say that there is a underlying war against women being successful, um, I would say I've seen that firsthand. I see powerful, incredible, ambitious women be silenced and minimized all the time. And I think, I don't think it is, um, you know, a bunch of people sitting out around a room being like, How can we make sure there are less female founders? But the fact of the matter is when you look at the data, the funding has gone down for female founders massively. The gap between men and women's pay is not closing as fast as it ought to be. You know, women are leaving the workforce at a higher rate than men. So while I don't think, yes, it's people sitting around a room saying, how have these women got so powerful? Let's kind of bash them down. I do see that there is still this huge um, which is trying very regularly to minimise the divine power of women. And I just find it wild, you know. And I think that culture and history is really fascinating in how that power rises and falls, you know. There was a history where women were incredibly powerful. There was a history where women were incredibly equal, if you look beyond our own very short Western history. And I feel like that time will come again. without sounding very, uh, you know, mystic. I (laughs) I feel really, really confident that that time will come again because evolution and ideology does not happen, does not change overnight. It takes a long, long time of everyone making their tiny little changes because I do feel it takes these cycles of these waves of people pushing to make things happen, which is why I'm not ready to bow out or quit. Because I think if I stop doing what I'm doing, who will pass the baton on to the next people? So when we, have, we have that responsibility. I, I, I share that feeling. Yeah. I share that feeling. And I, and I don't want to... I'm very, very um, adamant about not putting that responsibility on other people because it's a personal decision. As in sometimes I also feel that women, especially black women, just need to rest. Why are we... We've been laboring forever. There is an element of no... The world isn't on my show. I don't hold the responsibility of the world. I don't have to do all of these things. I'm actually going to enjoy my life, live through pleasure, rest, have joy. But for me, I think that my purpose is to push gender equity forward. That's what I'm going to do. I love that
0: you've taken on that responsibility yourself because we need women like you. You know, everyone that's listening to this absolutely needs to feel that like you've created the stack world that has, you know, people's back, you have our back. And with your intelligence and your tenacity and your, you know, resilience, you're, I'm 100% sure going to change things and, and for that i'm so so grateful i'm going to hand over to you for your letter to your younger self i don't know what you're going to say but i feel empowered already before you've even read it so from us thank you so much for sharing this over to you
1: dear shami congratulations on doing so well in your gcse's granddad is very proud College is going to be incredible, but you really don't need to do more business studies. You've been doing it since you're 11 years old. Why don't you choose the subjects that you will read deep into the night as you always love to read? I want you to remember as you go on in your life to not take or make decisions based on the boys that you're dating. Just because they want to tag along with everything you do doesn't mean you have to let them and then center your entire world around them. You already have the power to achieve everything you need and one day you will meet your equal. Be patient. Moving to London is going to be tough. Are you actually ready for it? You may start feeling really lonely. Mom isn't going to be there for you really and you're totally going to be separated from your family and I know that your feelings of loneliness are going to show up time and time again. So remember to be intentional in who you choose to be around you and don't just get obsessed with the first set of people who show an interest in you. Friends will last forever when they have your best interests at heart. You've always been curious, so stay curious. You have your own identity, dreams and goals. Don't rush them because everything you want is on its way to you and everything you need is within you. And I, of course, am always here.
0: Oh, I can just imagine a younger you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you again for everything that you're doing for us ladies and future girls like yourself when you were that little girl that you just spoke to. But thank you so, so much.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Holly. This has been incredible. And please keep doing what you're doing. If you've enjoyed this episode if
0: it's helped you along your journey or inspired you would you mind rating and reviewing your support means the world to me it really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love and if you want to hear all our latest news you can sign up to my weekly newsletter holly's desk notes over at holly.co